Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good. For this um, this last evening talk, I had a few different possible themes, um, but um, <clears throat> I thought I'd uh, follow up this morning's instructions um, with um, going a bit more into what we were looking at—that quality of Vedana of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, and the I like to call this talk um, Transforming Suffering into Happiness. A good alchemical formula, wouldn't you say? Uh, is this, is, uh, this is really what we're doing. If you remember Vedna, that feeling tone that every moment is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When we're not aware, we generally uh, follow those moments, those flavors of experience with a reaction. The reaction typically, if it's pleasant, Grasping, I want it, I like it, I want more of it, I want to possess it. Grasping, also known as greed. If the valence is unpleasant, the typical response is pushing away, aversion, hatred. And if the valence is neutral, our usual response is to not notice it, to space out on it, um, to uh, either be bored to the point where we find ourselves uh, looking for something else or just not to notice at all. This is called uh, delusion or ignorance. Those are the three uh, roots of suffering in the Buddhist teachings. Greed, hatred, delusion, or more mildly put, attachment, aversion, ignorance. Sometimes they're called the three poisons because they are um, states of suffering themselves and they lead to more suffering. It's interesting, it's kind of like what I was sharing the other night about the ice cream cone, how it's wired up. It's not that once you have a gratification of your desires, you don't say, oh, great, that's enough. Actually, what it does is it stimulates, it triggers this wanting more of that feeling of end of desire. And so... Um, it builds on itself. Oh, what's the next thing I can want? And the next. And we keep on looking hap for happiness, as I said, outside of ourselves. Those are the three roots of suffering. Greed, hatred, delusion. <coughs> if we are mindful, if we are very present, and just as um, Celia was saying a, a moment ago, she could see, oh, here's that mind state. Ah, and there's another way. If we're mindful of the pleasant, we can enjoy it fully, appreciate it fully, but not get caught in grasping. This is known as non-greed. If we're mindful of the unpleasant 
instead of the response of aversion, we can open up to it and allow it to be here and perhaps even meet it with a friendliness, with an attitude of this is what's happening in the present moment and I can be with this too instead of struggling or fighting or pushing away. Non-hatred. And when we are aware and awake in a, um, a neutral moment, that too is worthy of our attention and we see clearly. Even something seemingly as bland as the breath, in, out, in, out. And you might have seen for yourself at first in the retreat, the breath seems very boring often to people. Just being with my breath? Big deal. Do I have to do it? We just had one a moment ago. Do I have to follow another one? Um, But as you develop your presence and mindfulness, the breath can be just a lovely place to rest our attention. And it can become even very interesting. In the same way, the sound of the bird or the sound of a chainsaw or just the sound of steps walking in a more neutral way. Oh, and here's steps walking, and that's okay too. That is seeing clearly or non-delusion. Seeing clearly, clarity, uh, wisdom. Those are the three sources of all happiness, according to the Buddha. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Often the Buddha's teachings are put in uh, the, the negative. He, uh, act, often uh, they're not affirmed. This is it. This is it. It's not this, not this, not this. But if you think about those three, another way of saying non-greed is the quality of open-handedness which can be expressed both in letting go, as we talked about in that third noble truth, and more positively, generosity. As uh, Helen was so uh, beautifully speaking about today, that generosity is a source of great happiness. Non-hatred, put more positively, is really the quality of friendliness, kindness, love. And non-delusion, as I said a moment ago, is seeing clearly, is wisdom. So I wanted to uh, first point out that this is not a minor little thing to see clearly the, um, the valence, the Vedana, of experience because in the moment that you're seeing that second foundation of mindfulness, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, you are really moving from greed, hatred, and delusion, those typical responses, to non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. You're moving from creating suffering through the typical response to creating true happiness, the wise, mindful response. And that's where I, I said the other day, uh, talking about mindfulness, every moment counts. That's, that's my, my little pep talk to myself. Every single moment that I'm mindful, that I'm truly mindful without those typical responses, I am weakening the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind and strengthening the forces of generosity, love, and wisdom. Pretty cool, huh? And you're, um, you're both weakening those forces in the moment and you're also planting seeds for those 
to arise in the future because what we practice now becomes how we are in the world. The Buddha was um, a, uh, one way to think of, of him was, um, sometimes I think of him as a, a behavioral psychologist that, uh, among other kinds of psychology, but he was all about practicing habits that lead to well-being. As I think I mentioned here, uh, that great quote, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So I wanted to speak specifically about these these three, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. <clears throat> Sorry, and, uh, yeah, that's right, and I'll just go with one at a time. So non-greed, greed, non-greed, generosity. Mm. Generosity is the the first of the um, ten paramitas or ten perfections that the Buddha spoke of. There are these ten qualities that he said one can develop on the path to awakening. Uh, And it's the first one that he would teach is generosity. There's generosity, um, virtue, um, patience, effort, um, resolve. Um, um, let me see if I can get them all. Wisdom, um, truthfulness, resolve loving-kindness, and uh, equanimity. I might have missed one in there. Renunciation, thank you. But he started out teaching generosity to lay people. That was even before teaching about meditation or about um, good conduct or wisdom or patience. He started out with generosity because it's something that anybody can relate to the, the source of joy that comes from that. <clears throat> it feels good to share. Isn't that interesting that we're wired up that it feels good to share? It didn't have to be like that. You know, there's a lot of independent species that just travel alone and they are taking care of themselves. But we are a very social species. And that is a tremendous joy in generosity because it is both a letting go, the freedom that comes from letting go, from not grasping, and also the feeling of connection that we have with others. You know when you have something really good, say getting back to the ice cream analogy, say you have just an exquisite new flavor and you're with somebody, you know that feeling? You say, oh, you got to try this. You know? Not too big a bite, but, <laughs> but go ahead, you got to try it. Because we, we want to share and it, we, we feel lonely when we don't share. I remember one... Um, one retreat, it was a, a, one of those longer courses in, in Massachusetts. I, I saw the, the, the power of generosity. I was, um, I was assigned to pot washing in those, in those days. Um, they didn't wait for volunteers. They assigned you. And I was assigned for pot washing, which is not my favorite thing to do. It's one of the most demanding jobs, and it was pot washing after lunch, which for me is sacred nap time. (laughs) Oh, God. And I was just feeling filled with self-pity, right? Because not only was I not napping, but I would often, you know, just, just maybe make it to the next sitting after lunch, which I definitely wanted to do. And I remember one, uh, one time, um, I was doing the 
pots, feeling kind of sorry for myself, and out of the um, out of the staff dining room. Uh, in those days, the dining room came out right to the pot washing area. <clears throat> They've changed it around now. And the the manager of the retreat um, looked at me in what he thought was very diligently doing my job, and he had something in his hand, a kind of silver, it was wrapped in, uh, in tin foil, aluminum foil. And he looked at me, and he looked at what he had, and he whispered, here, this is for you when you're finished, for all the good work you're doing. I was very motivated to finish the, <laughs> the pots, finally dried my hands, and open up the tin foil, and there was a big piece of cheesecake with glaze and like the yummiest thing my mind could imagine. By this time in the retreat, having a slice, an extra slice of bread at tea time was a big deal, right? <laughs> and there it was, this big piece of cake. And as you practice, and maybe you've seen this, the heart opens and you just naturally start to feel a bit more connected and want to be generous. And besides, it was a big piece of cake. So I, I looked. In those days, you had your own place, your own cup and bowl, and you knew where it was. Now they, every, like here, we, we wash the dishes and, uh, and sterilize them. But you knew where your place was. And there's not much to do in a three-month course. You know where other people's <laughs> bowls are, too. And I thought, well, um, I think I'm going to just share this. So I broke the cake into four pieces. And I put three pieces in three yogis, or, uh, other retreatants' bowls that I felt a real warm connection with. And uh, waiting until the next, until tea time, you know, for them to come in. I ate that piece very, very mindfully, I can assure you. It took maybe about 90 seconds or so, you know. <laughs> Mm, watching it dissolve and then gone. Mm. And at tea time, I watched each person as they went in and looked at their bowl and their mouth dropped. You know, look at that. And one person broke their piece into and put it in another bowl, who's I, who I saw. That that. That person who broke their cake is uh, my dear friend and teaching colleague, Howie Cohn. And there he was, you know, putting it in. And what, when I share this story, kind of right back there, that one cake, now 35 years later, I feel a connection to the manager, Jim, the three people who I shared it with, and the fourth person down the line, I, sh I have a connection with five people through one piece of cake. That cake lasted 90 seconds in my mouth, but 35 years later, I feel a connection with those others. And that's how it works. It's Generosity is the currency of our caring. And probably... You can, uh, you might think in your home of a gift that somebody gave you, and maybe whenever you use it, got something from you right in our, our bedroom from Landa when we were in New Zealand uh, last year. The beautiful um, glass boat, Waka. Uh -huh. And there it is. Every time you see it, oh, Hello, hello, Landa. You know, my cup in my bathroom. Hi, Roger. Hi, Francis. You know, that's how it works. Isn't that amazing? So it's really powerful. This not holding on is the way that we feel connected to each other.
and we can cultivate this quality of, of sharing uh, to a beautiful extent. Uh, I, I want to just say one thing about the generosity of giving uh, on the other side of the coin, which is about receiving. Because sometimes we can get very good at giving, but when it comes to receiving, that's a different story. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. And particularly, I, I don't want to make this into stereotypes, but I, I seem to think this is even more so for, uh, for women than for, for men, because women, in my, in my mind, just are, are programmed, are wired up to give and provide and nurture. Not always, of course, but, um, but as far as receiving and really letting in, that can be a stretch for some people. And I just wanted to share one little teaching of the Buddhas around the exchange of gifts. And he said that it's important to see that the karmic impact of a gift exchange depends on the purity in the heart of the one giving, the purity of the gift, and the purity in the heart of the one receiving. So it's one thing to give, but if the one on the other side isn't really fully there for the receiving and receiving it graciously, there's something that's uh, not as powerful in the karma gift of the one who's giving. So you ever give anybody a gift, somebody a gift, and they say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, why'd you do that? Oh, thank you. Oh, but you shouldn't have done it. Then you think, maybe I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> or if you think that, at least it's not nearly as complete and, and satisfying. If somebody, if you give somebody a gift and they say, oh, thank you so much. That was so thoughtful. I'm, I'm so... I'm so moved, or whatever they see. Even if they just say, thank you very much. Ah, you feel good, don't you? It kind of completes the circuit. So if you're on the, on the end of not being able to receive so easily, you're more of a giver than a receiver, just keep in mind that you, it's actually an act of generosity to be able to receive because you're deepening the good karma of the one who's giving. In, uh, in, in uh, parlance, it's, uh, in Buddhist circles, it's called being a field of merit for the one who's giving. Besides just giving those closest to us, uh, it's even a more inspiring act to give, to share, to express our caring to those who are not particularly in our close circle. And this is where the whole realm of service comes in, the importance of service. Not just the importance, the, the joy of service. And a few people here have uh, shared with me in the last few days some of the, the things that they do uh, out in the world. And it's so moving, you know, whether it's being with, um, uh, with dying or with aged people, uh, aging people or, or ill people, or um, putting their heart into causes that really uh, inspire them and move them. And this is a very important um, part of Dharma practice and a source of tremendous joy. And it's important to see that um, not only is it uh, a, a source of well-being for ourselves, but this is an important thing in the world to put our caring into action. 
particularly these days, and I mentioned it a little bit in uh, in the, the talk in uh, um, in Melbourne uh, about the importance of um, caring uh, with all the suffering going on in the world. This is a very very uh, intense times. You know that curse. May you be may you be born in interesting times, um, where. We are both um, heading towards real um, calamity and destruction, and we are also more conscious as a species than we've ever been before. And if we, uh, besides the destruction of, of uh, climate change and things like that, which I've been very uh, interested in, there's all the wars and and uh, hatred and anger and fear and injustice. Uh, right now in the states, there's some you know awful things happening around uh, inequality and um, um, uh, some uh, yeah racial stuff, and there's real tensions in in the in the states, and so much is about inequality these days, these days, for, for a long time. And uh, it's important as Dharma practitioners to, um, to find what really moves you. And as one, one of my inspirations, Andrew Harvey, says, find what really touches you and follow your heartbreak. Follow where your heart is really breaking and do something to make it better because that's where the healing can come in for yourself and making a difference in the world. And I wanted to read to you a, a, a passage of um, Bhikkhu Bodhis, who is the premier translator of, um, of Theravadan Buddhism. If you know all the thick translations like the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses and the, the connected discourses and all these big, big translations. That's Bhikkhu Bodhi, brilliant, brilliant scholar who um, a few years ago wrote this essay that appeared in Buddha Dharma magazine, a very good journal, uh, and it's called A Challenge to Buddhists. I'll just read an excerpt. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Atta attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite. But it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. In each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels, even the lowest, harshest, and most degrading levels, not in mere contemplation, but in effective relief-granting action illuminated by its own world-transcending goal. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge, marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. And I believe it points in the direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. Bhikkhu Bodhi, a challenge to Buddhists. 
This is not just practicing for your own peace and stress reduction. This is about becoming as conscious as we can and sharing our consciousness in the world from a place of joy, of making a difference, even when it's hard stuff. So this is the, the full expression of generosity. In every moment that you are practicing being with the, with the pleasant and not holding on to it, but opening non-greed, you are practicing this source of happiness. Second, non-hatred or love. Non-hatred, non-aversion. As you probably have seen, I know a number of people have mentioned it, those heart practices each day, they, um, they bring a whole other dimension to our Dharma practice besides just seeing things clearly. We need that juice, that caring. It's a natural expression of who we are. <clears throat> the aversion is uh, if we get swept up and we're living in anger and hatred, as sometimes people do, um, it's a very painful existence. Um, think of how much hatred there is in this world. Isn't it amazing? How much hatred? People don't see how poisonous it is. The Buddha says he has this image of um, hatred, wanting to hurt somebody else or wishing them ill will is like picking up a hot coal, wanting to hurt them, not realizing that you're the one that's getting burned as you pick it up. Or wishing somebody ill will is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will get sick. And yet we can agitate our minds so much. So loving kindness, non-hatred, is a source of tremendous uh, power in the heart. And it starts with ourselves, being kind to ourselves. And I know many people here have said how on this retreat, they're seeing how unkind they can be. And when there's just even a touch of kindness, a touch of friendliness to ourselves, what a difference the whole practice makes. It's amazing how merciless we can be. I wanted to share with you a... uh, a passage that I love about um, seeing seeing the possibility of remembering who we are. This is um, this is found. This is a passage that's found in Jack's uh, Jack Hornfield's book, "The Art of uh, Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace." And you can Google it even without the book. He says. In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he's placed in the center of the village alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, 
and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. Pretty good tribe to hang out with, wouldn't you say? If that was the first time you heard that, were you wondering, oh my goodness, what are they going to do to this guy? <laughs> oh no, gosh. And then when you hear each recalling the good per- things that person has done, doesn't it make sense? Oh, of course. They just forgot who they were. And we do that to ourselves. We just forget who we are. And it takes some remembering and it takes some mindfulness and maybe some quieting to see how much goodness there is inside. So we start off by bringing that kindness to ourselves. And the more we can bring it to ourselves, the more we can share it with others. I want to uh, share with you a a loving-kindness little exercise uh, that I like to share in in the Awakening Joy class, and I didn't get a chance to do it here, uh, that that was a big shift in my metta for myself. Um, And the way this came about, I was doing a a six-week period of just working on loving-kindness and the other Brahma-viharas. And you start out by doing, I was doing a week of loving-kindness to myself. Just every waking moment when I could remember, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease, etc., over and over. And it was going okay. I wasn't giving myself a hard time. By that time, and this is many years into my, uh, my practice, I'd learned not to beat myself up. So I was doing okay, but I wasn't really, it wasn't really juicy. I, I wasn't head over heels in love with myself. And uh, after about three days of doing this, just doing it, and just having faith, it'll work, we'll do it, um, at some point, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. There was no doubt that this person loved me. <clears throat> I thought, hmm, wow, yep, well, they love me. And then I thought, this would be so much easier if I could see what they saw. And then I connected the dots and I said, well, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And that's when I hit upon this little um, shift in perspective around metta that um, was a very major moment in my practice. And I want to share this with you so you can kind of play around with it. So I invite you to sit up and um, bring to mind somebody, some being in your life and it can be a child, it can be a pet, it can be uh, just somebody who there's a really warm feeling for, who uh, you know really cares about you and enjoys you and loves you. And first, just imagine they're right here with you, maybe smiling back, oh, thanks for picking me, you know, and just feel that uh, sweet connection between you. And now, if you can, imagine inhabiting their consciousness and seeing through their eyes who they see when they're with their dear friend. Notice all the things that touch them about you. Maybe your goodness or your playfulness 
or your creativity or your intelligence or your um, loyalty. Notice all of it, the essence of who you are. Just drink yourself in. And just see from their perspective, does this person deserve to be happy and treated well? That's what they wish for you. May you really be happy. You might wish yourself from their vantage point a few moments. May you truly be happy and see all the goodness inside of you. Now let your consciousness move from their vantage point to come right inside your own body and stay connected to those qualities that your friend sees and wish yourself well. If you like, you can even put your hand on your heart and just get who you are. And you can say it either second person or first person. May you really be happy and see all the goodness inside. Or may I. Okay, you can open your eyes. You get a little glimpse of what your friend sees. It's interesting. Um, we think that we're that people don't know us, but actually we're the last ones to know us. Everybody else sees who we see, but we're seeing it through a particular filter that somehow says, mm, "Not good enough." Often, not always, but often. Just a little flip of consciousness. I, I sometimes ask this. Suppose you, um, you met somebody who really, really understood you, who really um, understood your, uh, your taste, enjoyed your sense of humor, really got your take on things on the world, really could understand your hopes and your fears. How would you feel about meeting somebody who really got you? Wouldn't it be great? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. (laughs) Only one. One person that really gets your hopes and your fears who really understands you. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you would probably be saying, where have you been all my life? What a neat human being. But somehow we miss that. Isn't that strange? So it starts... This kindness, this love, this metta begins with ourselves. And then it includes others that we have this capacity to love. The near enemy of loving kindness is attachment. And that's where it gets confused because we all of a sudden want things from people who mean something to us. And that beautiful, open, expansive feeling turns to a contracted feeling. Think of somebody who you, um, who you really care about. Maybe the person who just came to your mind or somebody else who's really important to you. Okay, Close your eyes for a moment. And first, just wish them well. Get in touch with how much you really do want to see them happy. May you really be happy. 
and may you feel my love for you and know that I really wish you well. And notice how that feels right now in your body and in your mind, in your heart, as you do that. Just wishing them well. And now for a moment, recall how it feels when you want something from them, when you don't want them to disappoint you, when you hope they don't blow it, when you have an agenda for them. And notice how that feels in your body, in your mind, and in your heart. I won't leave you here. Take a nice breath. And once again, just wish them well. Nothing that you want other than their own well-being. May you really be happy. And know that I just want the best for you. And again, notice how it feels inside. You notice a difference? In one moment, and it often happens that the ones that are most important to us are the ones that we want the most from. And so that love can turn to pain. And of course, we want people to measure up and to treat us well and to uh, be responsible. But often it's that extra agenda of what will I get from them or I hope they don't blow it that adds something onto the equation. So um, when there's metta, it's just an outflow of well-wishing. So metta for others who are close to us. Metta, yesterday we did metta for the difficult person. Tonight, by the way, when... We close, we'll, do, uh, we'll include metta for all beings because we didn't get to that. Metta for the difficult person. This is advanced metta. Mm. There's a, a line I love from um, the poet Henry, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He says, if we could read the secret history of our enemies we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. It's just, we have no idea what's going on in somebody else's reality. The pain that they've gone through or that they carry, the obliviousness that they, they might be in uh, or the, um, um, the conditioning that they've, that they've experienced. And so this metta for those beyond ourselves, that beyond our close, close people in our lives, this is really powerful. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, one of the most beautiful le- uh, teachings of Jesus Love your enemies. That's a really high bar. And for those who we look down upon, there's no way that we can have the heart open to them or them to us. It's a line by uh, Martin Luther King I love. He says, um, we have no moral authority over those who can feel our contempt. People can feel it when we're looking down or judging them. So this is the next one, loving, learning to open our hearts to those who are difficult. And then there's uh, another 
area of this non-hatred, this loving-kindness. And that is about loving the truth. We love the truth. And the more we can um, get in touch with how much we love the truth, how much we love to wake up and be conscious, then our practice takes on a whole other uh, richness and unfolding. And I want to share with you a story that um, helped me get in touch with this, and maybe it it, it can uh, incline your mind that way too. This was um, many years ago when I first was getting into Dharma practice after a a couple of years of really... uh, loving, um, falling in love with practice uh, in Buddha Dharma, I studied with uh, Ramdas, or I, I was, I was uh, wanting to study with Ramdas, this man who wrote Be Here Now, some of you are familiar with. It was a book that changed my life, and it was more of a, a Hindu bhakti um, devotional scene. Um, people were doing Sri Ram, Jay Ram, and having malas and chanting, lots of chanting and like th- that stuff. Um, but I really felt that it was it was going to be helpful for me, and and uh, um, he had opened up my heart in a beautiful way. So um, I met him to see if it was if it would work for me to be in this scene. It was very small; it wasn't a big big class, and wasn't not you could. It's not something you could sign up for. Uh, it was just something that you were invited to be part of. And I heard about this, and I, and I went to meet with Ram Das to see if I could join this. And here I had been a Buddhist practitioner for the last few years. So we had this conversation uh, about seeing if it would fit for me to be in this whole devotional scene. And um, so he said... Um, well, I know you've been a sincere practitioner, uh, but you know this is this is about devotion to um, to the the divine. Uh, let me ask you: um, Do you love Jesus? And I said, I like Jesus. <laughs> He said, no, do you love Jesus? I said, well, I'm inspired by his teachings, but I don't know if I love him the way maybe you think I should. Uh, And he said, oh, okay. And he said, "Uh, well, let me ask, do you love Krishna? I said, I like Krishna. (laughs) Just that whole spirit of divine and celebration. I don't know if I love him. He said, all right. Well, and then he said, let me ask you, do you love God? And I said, well, look, um, <laughs> Ramdas, um, I was raised Jewish, and when I was growing up, I didn't get the deep mystical teachings of Judaism that I've found since. For me, God was this very powerful man with a big beard and a big book (laughs) and a big pen saying, you're going to have a good day and you're not going to have a good day. And I... Uh, I had more the fear of God in me than the love of God. So I I can't say that I love God. But when I hear the word God, I translate it as Dharma, which to me is the just the perfection of it all, the mystery of it all, and the the unnameable yeah, unfathomable mystery. And then he said, all right, well, let me ask you, do you love the Dharma? 
And that one, I said, oh, yeah. He said, you're sure? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And he said, oh, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, tell the Dharma you love it. I said, really? He said, yeah, say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> really? Yeah. He said, I'll say it with you. You say it, I'll say it with you. And I felt like a complete jerk. I said, okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. He said, keep on doing it. And I said, I love you, Dharma. He said, and after about the third or fourth time, I really felt it. And, um, and tears were coming down my face, at which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> and I did enter into the, the class, which was quite a profound experience. But that moment where he pointed that out to me, how much I love the Dharma, how much I love the truth, is a very meaningful one. And I really encourage all of us to get in touch with that place that you love the truth. You love the Dharma. Why else would you put yourself through something like this for a week? You know, how I spent my, my summer vacation, you know, sitting still and watching my breath, you know. There's got to be something really strong in you that says, I need to do this, I'm called to do this. And it's beautiful. Don't miss the fact that you love the Dharma whether you call it the Dharma, or you love God, or you love the truth, there's something that has been calling you that you can't ignore. So, non-greed, non-hatred, generosity, an open-hearted love. <clears throat> and every moment that you are with an unpleasant experience, in a mindful way that's not recalling in aversion, you are cultivating that friendliness, that open-heartedness. And then finally, the last one, non-delusion or wisdom, clarity. <clears throat> Every single moment that you're here and you're not spaced out on the neutral, you are seeing clearly. What is it that you're seeing clearly? I mentioned this the other day when we were talking uh, in the five faculties on wisdom, that uh, things are impermanent, that holding on to that which is changing is suffering, is dukkha, and that you too are this impersonal, impermanent, fluid process that is an expression of life. And when you identify with your experience, when you take it to be, oh, that's my thought, that's, that's my awful neurotic pattern, or that's my wonderful thought, you know, that's just the other side of it. You have a thought that comes through your mind of being kind. Hey, pretty good. I hope everybody sees what a wonderful person I am. That's just identifying with the pleasant, with the noble. All of those thoughts, all of those feelings, all of those emotions, all of these sensations are just following their own laws. There can be a training that sets you in a certain direction towards more freedom, which is what the Buddha was pointing out. But to take ownership of your experience is really missing the point. I had a, 
I'll share with you uh, my own um, major opening to this. On uh, one retreat, I was sitting, uh, and it was really just, it was beautiful. You, I fell into this place where I was pretty clear, and I could sit for long periods at a time, and uh, just without pain and with with energy, and you know, um, it was really delicious. I don't know how I got there, but there I was, just kind of cruising along, and it was really cool. It does happen sometimes, and in this one sitting um, where I had been sitting for, for quite some time, somebody came into the meditation hall who sat right near me, who I really respected. I respected her practice tremendously. She seemed very sincere. Um, and there she was, and I was sitting with my eyes open sometimes just to ground myself. And uh, after about 10 minutes, this person was having the classic case of the nods, just kind of going down. Coming. And there I was cruising along, and the thought occurred to me the hours, the countless hours that that was me. I knew very well what that felt like. And how I was where I was, and she was where she was, I had absolutely no clue. But it occurred to me that very easily, the next day, we could be switching roles. And in that moment, when it occurred to me, all of a sudden, the whole room kind of did this kaleidoscopic swirling around and instead of it being me and her and him and him and her we were just these energies and here was energy and clarity um, embodied here, and here was sloth and torpor there, <laughs> and here was, uh, was love here, and here was restlessness there, and it could all be changed around in a moment. And to take credit for where I was made no sense to me at all. I had no idea how that happened. And that was so much more uh, profound than say than getting into wow it's really cool right now because the selflessness of the process is, became so obvious it was it was really beautiful what what you said about just seeing these thoughts and these patterns and seeing it's not me I don't have to blame myself for it I don't need to take credit for it. I can rejoice when it's feeling good, but delusion is saying, look at me, look how I'm doing. And clarity is seeing, ah, the selfless nature of it all. And the more we do that, the more we come into um, true harmony with the truth. Let's see what I say. There's a, a passage that I, I love that I want to read to you um, from Martha Graham, the great uh, choreographer and dancer, uh, to Agnes DeMille, another very wonderful uh, dancer and choreographer who uh, she mentored. And this is what she says. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening 
that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how, it, how valuable, nor how it compares to other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, and to keep the channel open. And I love that quote because it both honors the uniqueness of life expressing through you without taking ownership of the, the magic and the creativity that just comes through you. It's both yours and it's not yours. And so to celebrate it and to appreciate it but to see that you don't have to take credit for it. Because ultimately, it's just life expressing itself. And the awareness that sees is not yours either. It's just awareness awareing. So I'll close with this um, beautiful poem about this by Dana Falls. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness knowing itself as existence. Just this breath, awareness waking up to truth. This is non-delusion. Awareness knowing itself through this form. Awareness waking up to truth. So, that's it for a moment. And know that every moment that you're mindful, you are cultivating generosity, kindness, wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.